Viktor Frankl said, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Stay tuned for the next hour as Sue explores the human psyche, what makes us tick and how to live better, more fulfilled and more meaningful lives. Only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on 101.9 High FM on the Finding Human program. And I'm actually back in studio and it's so wonderful. I've got Craig sitting opposite me and I've just seen our wonderful High FM people in the office. Few of them working there, but it's just so good to see such friendly, wonderful faces. My guest today is Peter Bailey and he's on Zoom to Israel from Israel. And welcome, Peter. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Sue. Thank you very much for welcoming me and thank you for having me on your show this morning. Let me just introduce you a bit. Peter is a historian and author of two fantastic books, Street Names in Israel and Men of Valor, which we'll probably discuss a bit later. He's a historian. He's a, 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 he was the national chairman of the South African Ex-Service League. He was a successful businessman before making Aliyah. And he was is a member of the Ochberg um, Heritage Committee. He's a researcher for the Chaim Herzog Museum in honor of Jewish soldiers in World War II, which should soon be opening. And he's also, he takes, with his friend Joel Klotnik, they take Telfed Tiyuls or outings around Israel. I've been on one of them. It was fantastic. Peter, you are my go-to person for any info <laughs> regarding military history or otherwise history in, in Israel. What I didn't say is that you've also become a good friend. You and your wife, Jeannie, have become good friends of ours. So, P uh, Peter, how do you feel being on radio today? Oh, Sue, I'm very happy to be on radio today. I think the subject we've got to discuss is not a very happy subject. But nonetheless, it's a very, very important subject. Um, and I'm sure you will enlighten all our guests as to, to the subject. Well, our subject is courageous resistance. But you were saying that you have a fantastic um, quote from Churchill. What was it that Churchill said? Well, in, in the context of the, of the conflict that's going on in, in the Ukraine, where Russia has attacked the Ukraine, uh, Winston Churchill said, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. In a similar vein, uh, writer and philosopher George Santayana said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And that's so exactly... So I think those, that's exactly what's happening at the moment. Um, the Russians, uh, Vladimir Putin or the Russians, have forgotten history. They've forgotten uh, what happened in the past and uh, the number of times that Russia has tried to invade Ukraine has subjugated Ukraine and it's backfired on them each and every time. You know, Yuval Harari said that at the heart of the Ukraine crisis lies a fundamental question about the nature of history and the nature of humanity. Is change possible? Can humans change the way they behave? Or does history repeat itself endlessly with humans forever condemned to reenact past tragedies without changing anything except the decor. That probably, I think, sums it up very, very well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the history of the Ukraine and Russia uh, 
going back to that that area, going back through three, four, five hundred years, it's been a continual state of flux. And the Ukraine is very much, uh, and I often compare it to Israel, and not the way that Zelensky compared it, but in a different way. <laughs> yeah. Israel is the bridge between Africa and Asia. And Ukraine is the bridge between Russia and Western Europe, or the rest of Europe. And for that reason, the Ukraine has always been important, and it's always been sought after by the Russians and sought after by the Poles. It's been a continual battleground for hundreds and hundreds of years. And would you say that um, that Putin's gamble at the moment is actually failing because he didn't take into consideration the resistance of the Ukrainian people. Well, my opinion is Putin made three major errors of judgment, or he was advised, and as a result of that, he made these errors of judgment. He overestimated the military, Russian military strength and capabilities. Um, what's become obvious to me is that their command and control, their strategies and their, their command and control systems are just not working and haven't worked. Then Putin underestimated the Ukrainian military capabilities as well as the will of the citizens to defend their homeland. They've done it before. And thirdly, these errors led him to believe that the Russian forces would occupy Kiev within a week, huh. allowing him to install a puppet government, which of course hasn't happened. And you know, reading analysts, people that are somewhat cleverer than what I am, Putin's character does not allow him to back down. Mm. And I think also in, was it 2014, when Russia um, annexed Crimea with very little resistance, do you think that made him believe that he was going to just walk across the rest of Ukraine as well? Uh, that, that partially, but I also believe that the reaction from the West, the very mild reaction from the West at the time, encouraged him to further adventures. Mm -hmm. but so it's a very, very similar analogy to uh, to the Second World War when uh, Hitler was allowed to occupy parts of Czechoslovakia and Britain and France allowed it without, uh, without much of a murmur. And that emboldened him to then attack Poland. Mm. So, you know, we're looking at a madman here who's trying to exert his power over an entire people. And the fear is, I think, that if a madman is, is stopped in his tracks, he isn't ever stopped in his tracks. He goes the next mile. Sue, so I don't believe he's a madman. I think he's a highly calculating, highly intelligent individual. Mm -hmm. But he is an autocrat. And autocrats use systems to achieve power. And once they've achieved power, the only important thing to them is retaining and remaining in power. Mm. And that's where Vladimir Putin is at the moment. What what difference, you know, there, there, I was reading an article the other day which said there's so many similarities between um, the World War II and the Ukrainian invasion. What similarities do you see? Uh, Sue, I'll, I'll, I'd like to go a little bit further than that, further back. Mm. In 1919, after the First World War, First of all, I've said 1917 was the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. And the result of that was that uh, Trotsky became the Minister of War, the Russian Minister of War. Now, Trotsky, interestingly enough, was born in the Ukraine. He was a Ukrainian Jew oh, by yeah. the name of Lev Bornstein. Mm. So he was, a, he was a Lithuanian. 
Uh, uh, Ukrainian, I beg your pardon. And he became the Russian Minister of War. Stalin, who was his his military leader, uh, was born in Georgia. He was a Georgian. So, yeah, we had this situation where a Ukrainian and a Georgian were prosecuting the Russian cause by attacking Ukraine in 1919 when Ukraine tried to assert its independence. We're going to get back to that shortly. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. This is Sue Jackson, and I'm on the Finding Human program, and my guest today from Israel is historian and author Peter Bailey. Hello, Peter. I'm back with you again, and you were talking about Trotsky and Stalin and 1914. Will you please go on? Is that right? Uh, 1919, after the Bolshevik Revolution, after the Second, after the First World War. So, uh, as I say, there's the parallels there where Russia invaded, Bolshevik Russia invaded Ukraine, and we have the same mix again. There were the Ukrainian nationalists, there were the Ukrainian Bolsheviks who wanted the Russians there, there were the ethnic Russians in eastern Ukraine uh, who wanted the Russians there, and then there was the, the Simon Petliura government who wanted an independent Ukraine. So it became a, a, I can only call it a mishmash, and then a new grouping came into it called the the Ukrainian Insurgent Army. Mm-hmm. Now they had another problem. Their problem was the Jews. They blamed the Jews of the Ukraine, which resulted in the pogroms. Mm. And it was a, an easy extension for them to make. Trotsky was a, was a Ukrainian-born Jew who'd become a Russian Bolshevik, and was now waging war on the Ukraine. So it was a Jewish problem, not a Bolshevik problem. It became a Jewish invasion. Mm-hmm. And that was all they needed to set off the pogroms, oh, um, which resulted in some, I don't know, 100,000 Jews being killed and around 300,000 Jewish children becoming orphans, mm-hmm. which created a huge catastrophe, very similar to what is happening currently. The only difference uh, is, I think, currently, those orphans are being housed and taken care of, but the Jewish orphans, there was no one to step in and help them. So what actually happened to those orphans? I know you're involved in the Ochberg um, Memorials Foundation. Yes, the Ochberg uh, Heritage Committee, the Ochberg Heritage, mm. we, we, we maintaining the, the, the heritage of Isaac Ochberg between three and 4,000 orphans were taken to the United States. And this was with the work of the Joint Distribution Committee, which was a, a combined organization of various Jewish organizations in America who did funding, relief work, provided food, provided aid. About 1,000 kids went to the United Kingdom, with smaller numbers going to Brazil, Mexico, and the Argentine. From a South African perspective, Cape Town's Isaac Ochberg uh, who we've just been talking about, took it on himself to rescue as many children as was possible in terms of the resources he had available. He approached South African Prime Minister Smuts for permission, and Smuts gave permission for an unlimited number of children to be brought to South Africa. The, the authorities, the Jewish authorities, believed that a maximum would be 200 uh, from practicality and cost-effectiveness. The South African government also paid pound for pound. Whatever was raised, they contributed pound for pound. And Isaac Ochberg went to the Ukraine, selected children, 
and ended, selected 200, took them to London. It was mm. an arduous three-month journey. Mm. From London, they had to be processed and eventually onto a ship and a three-week journey to Cape Town. So it was a huge task and a very arduous task. 178 orphans originally came. 22 of them, for various reasons, didn't. And just a, a little side story there. About a year ago, I was on my way to an Ochberg event wearing an Ochberg T-shirt. And I popped into the local Super Soul uh, delicatessen shop to buy something. And a chap came up to me and said, why, are you, why have you got that man's photo on your shirt? I said, do you know who he is? He says, yes, he's Isaac Ochberg. Um, this was an Israeli um, and spoke difficult English. And I said to him, how do you know about Isaac Ochberg? And the reply got shocked me. His grandfather and his grandfather's brother had been taken out of the Ukraine by Isaac Ochberg in 1922 mm. and taken to London. In London, they heard stories about wild animals in Africa and became scared of going to South Africa and ran away. Mm. But they were found by the next figure that I'll bring onto the scene, a man by the name of Israel Belkin, a Palestinian uh, living in Palestine. He'd made Aliyah years earlier. And he had also come to rescue children from the Ukraine. And he, Israel Belkin, took these two under his wing and brought them to what was then Mandate Palestine, together with another 148 other kids. Mm. Now, what's interesting, again, from a South African perspective, Israel Belkin established, with the help of the JNF, something called Far Yeladim, Children's Village. And this was the orphanage in which they were housed. The Durban Palestine Restoration Fund took responsibility for the first seven years of the existence of that orphanage to maintain 44 of the children there, which they did for seven years. Mm. So South Africa had quite a bit of an input. Canada had a couple by the name of Archie and Lillian Freeman, who were a wealthy philanthropic couple, and they paid to bring 150 children to Canada, mm. who were all handed out for adoption to Jewish families. Mm. You know, Peter, so in, so, sorry, yes, go on. All, all, all in all, diaspora jury filled the vacuum that the, to a degree that not having an Israel at that time left. Now with an Israel, it was so easy. Well, I was just going to say that when I watched the, the LL flight coming in with a whole lot of Ukrainian Jewish orphans uh, to Ben-Gurion, uh, and them getting off, and you could see the fear in their eyes and the uncertainty, and yet people were singing and clapping for them. But you can imagine little children coming to a strange country, not knowing the language, and yet, thank goodness, they were able to be taken out immediately and saved. And that is, in 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 many ways, courageous resistance, quite honestly, going in and moving children out. Uh, and, you know... The most beautiful photo that I've seen that was sent to me, uh, it said uh, the most beautiful photo I've seen, was uh, um, one of a whole lot of prams, I'm holding it up for you to see, that were um, in Poland. The Polish people had put them along the, the side of the station there, the train station, so that uh, uh, people crossing the borders, refugees, would have strollers or prams to put their children in. Now, I mean, how wonderful that that was Absolutely. actually happening to those refugees. And, and that, of course, brings us brings me to our, to the next Jewish refugee crisis. Yes. Um, which was uh, during the Holocaust. Hitler, as, as you, you said earlier, 
the similarities. Hitler in, was allowed to invade Poland by the appeasement policies of the West, and he had his blitzkrieg. Poland had horses, or, or cavalrymen on horses, trying to defend themselves against tanks. Mm. The Ukraine has a different situation. They armed to a far greater degree. But Hitler walked through, the, through Poland in no time. And that is what Putin expected to do in the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's backfired on him. He expected banners to be uh, hoisted in, in his favor. But, you know, the other thing that Yuval Harari said, which I thought was very true, is that nations are ultimately built on stories. So that each day that this war in Ukraine goes on, more and more stories are being um, are being told and going to be added to the Ukrainians' history of these very dark days. And in many ways, that's exactly, as you said, there's quite a lot of similarity between Israel and Ukraine because Israel, our stories are what sustain Israel in many ways and make them the, the nation that's saying never again, this will never happen again. Absolutely. And, and, and on that same subject, before invading the Ukraine, Putin made his famous speech in which he basically denied the existence of a Ukrainian people mm. um, and proclaimed it was a Russian. They were Russians and the whole thing was Russian and the whole story. And on that subject, author George Orwell said about, uh, about history, the most effective way to destroy a people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. Mm. Mm. And, and that's exactly what you are saying. Building that history is so much more important. And that is also part of resistance. And I think even in the camps, we will probably discuss it a bit later, but even in the camps, that keeping that history alive, keeping the culture alive, was, was part of the resistance of the courageous resistance, saying prayers on a Shabbos, uh, whether it was quietly or with a group, didn't matter. It still showed resistance. Yes, well, resistance, there's two types of resistance. There's spiritual resistance, right. which comes from, from the inner soul and the inner strength of the individual and, uh, and military resistance, which is a different thing altogether. But if you don't have that, that inner resistance, that inner soul, you're not going to be capable of carrying out the military resistance. Well, do you think that social media are actually helping that military resistance in Ukraine at the moment? Because, um, you know, the stories of the Ukrainian bravery are definitely not only giving resolve to the Ukrainians, but are actually telling the rest of showing the rest of the world that if the Ukrainians can do that, Surely the governments can do it as well. I mean, when you have a neutral country like Switzerland saying, you know, that they're also going to step in, um, it, you know, you, you wonder with social media, if we had social media in the Second World War, what would have been different? Well, I think, first of all, if, if there was social media in the Second World War, the Holocaust would have been far more publicized. It would have, would have been... Uh, the world would have known about it much, much earlier. Mm. Little snippets and stories came out. There was, there was very little substantiation. I mean, you can switch on your TV set now and you can sit and watch the war happening live. Absolutely. You can see buildings being bombed. You can see war crimes being committed in front of your eyes. And you can see the um, faces of the little children and, you know, absolutely. your heart goes out to them. You want to do something to help. 
That's absolutely. And that's, I think, where social media has made an enormous difference. I don't know whether it's social media or just the media generally, mm. but the war reporters are there. They, they're reporting. You can, nothing is hidden. Absolutely. Uh, except, in, except in Russia where they blacked out all the news. And the only reason they blacked it out because the news isn't good for them. Right. Absolutely. So true. And Peter, you know, in, in your books that you've written, you talk about the different Men of Valor, the one book, Men of Valor, which is it's a very, I found it a very powerful book. And if people would like to actually get it, they can at Telfed, through Telfed. And where else could uh, they no, get it? On Amazon. On Amazon. Oh, on Amazon. Oh, good. It's available on Amazon. Right. And, and it's Men of Valor, spent the, spelt the American way, V-A-L-O-R. And um, I must admit that that uh, your your the different stories of the forty men who, and women who were given uh, the Men of Valor, um, which is the highest award, um, are are very stirring. And I should imagine what's going to come out of Ukraine um, eventually is also that. But before we get to that, I just want to talk about what Israel is giving to Ukraine at the moment. Because um, President Zelensky said that he would like more from Israel. I think he would have liked Israel to supply them with warplanes and goodness knows what else. But Israel's got to be incredibly careful. And but they they their humanitarian aid. We will listen to a very short YouTube shortly on it. is is quite tremendous. I think it's probably one of the best in the world that they are, they are getting. Well, that's what Israel specializes in. Wherever there's disaster, Israel is there. Whether it's been in Haiti or Honolulu or in Indonesia, is India, Israel has been there when there's been disaster. And that is being a light unto the nations, um, mm. as far as I'm concerned. Um, but, but going back to what you said earlier about Israel's predicament, um, a lot of people are critical of Israel, even local Israelis. I've read articles very critical in the Israeli newspapers that Israel is not doing more for the Ukraine and and so on. But Israel has a huge problem with Russia and the Russian presence in Syria. If the cooperation between Israel and Russia in Syria falls apart, it won't take very long and we will have an Iranian presence entrenched on the Golan Heights. Mm right next to Israel. Mm. As long as the, the Russian presence is in Syria and Israel and Russia are cooperating in that regard, it gives Israel breathing space uh, from the Iranians and not having them right on our border, on the, uh, on the Golan border. So they're helping in so many other ways. I heard a story, I don't know if you actually have heard the story and whether you can tell me if it's true or not, about um, a whole ward full of young Ukrainian children um, who were on in the oncology ward, the cancer ward, being airlifted to Israel. Do you know anything about that? No, unfortunately not. No, I don't know much about that. I'll check up later. Yes, because um, it sounded like a very good story if it is true. Just tell... Yes, sorry, go on. So it's very difficult keeping up with all the developments as they are happening. Mm. But the main thing is that we are doing something. And, you know, the Rebbe said, we live in a state of emergency where the fires of confusion are raging. When a fire is burning, everyone is responsible for helping his fellow man. And, I mean, that was written a long time ago. Yes, absolutely. And it's so valid today. 
Peter, go on about resistance. And can you tell me a little bit about the resistance in World War II? See, yes. Resistance, as I said, comes from the inner soul. And that's why the, the Jews were very good at resistance. Now, there, there was a Polish resistance. There was a French resistance. There was a Ukrainian resistance, Czechoslovakian resistance. There were all, all these various groupings. Uh, there was Soviet resistance. What I found very interesting in my research was that the Ukrainian resistance forces, there is no historical record of one Jew having been with the Ukrainian resistance forces. Oh, gosh. That's strange. Well, I I don't think it's strange at all. I I think it's very telling. And it's what facts such as that which... Putin has used to say he has to denazify the Ukraine. What held 70 years ago, I don't think it holds now. You know, when you, saying, when you say there was no resistance in the uh, Jewish resistance in Ukraine, I mean, uh, I, I did read somewhere that b- despite being only 1% of the French population, the Jews accounted for about 15 to 20% of the French resistance. And some of these were member were refugees from Germany, Poland, and other Central European states. So that tells you something about France. Yes, absolutely. And also, you know, the Polish resistance. There were a lot of Jews, but talking about Polish resistance during the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, which was probably famous in the famous in the annals of uh, of Jewish resistance to the to the Nazis to the Holocaust. The Polish resistance did not help them. Mm-hmm. Mm. And it, it brings me back to, to my late grandfather came from a uh, came from Poland, and as a youngster, I used to say to him, "What made you leave Poland? Why did you leave Poland? Why did you come?" To... And he, I had a stock answer from him. He wouldn't discuss his life there. All I ever got from him was, the Pollocks hated the Jews, and they would kill the Jews whenever they had the opportunity. Mm. Any Jew who has left Poland must never think of going back there. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to get back to that shortly. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. We've got a very short YouTube that we're about to listen to, and I will uh, tell you about it as soon as we hear it. Ukraine has reported more than 350 civilian deaths since Russia launched its offensive against the country. During the last five days, more than half a million Ukrainians have fled their homeland, fearing for their life. The UN says that the conflict can displace more than 7 million people, making it the largest humanitarian crisis in Europe. In view of this crisis, the Prime Minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett, has announced that it's sending humanitarian aid. Israel's first response organization, United Hatzala, has already sent a medical relief delegation to the Moldovan border with Ukraine. Our correspondent Jody Cohen gets you more in this next week's exclusive interview. I'm speaking with Avi Marcus, the chief paramedic for United Hatzala and the head of the Psychotrauma and Crisis Response Unit. Now, Avi, you're serving as the chief medical officer for the mission in Moldova on the border with Ukraine. What can you tell us about the situation on the ground? The situation is we arrived here uh, almost 24 hours ago uh, here in uh, Moldova, Kishinev. And behind me is the, the Jewish shore. Uh, as we arrived, automatically we were uh, helped with the people here taking down all the stuff we brought from Israel, mainly medications and uh, food 
and other things for the people here in, in Kishinev, all the refugees coming out of the border, needing food, drinks, medications, and so on and so forth. Together with that on the ground now, we're just, as you see in the back, all the other people, we're organizing two uh, different groups of our people, 15 people going out to the borders to meet the people coming out of uh, Ukraine. The people over there, as we, we know by now, need uh, assistance, if it's psychotrauma assistance, if it's uh, food, drinks, people sitting in, in queues for hours and hours and hours and hours, medical equipment will need to give them if they need and medical assistance. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, I am back with Peter Bailey from Israel. If you'd like to SMS us, please do so on 34519. On that note about the, the uh, humanitarian aid that, that Hatzola and Israel United are offering, uh, Natan Sharansky said this, When I was growing up in Ukraine in Donetsk, there were a lot of nations and nationalities. There were people who had Russian, Ukrainian, Georgian, Kozaki written on their IDs. It was not so important. There was no big difference. But one thing was important. If it said Jew, it was as if you had an illness. He goes on to say, we knew nothing about Judaism. There was nothing significant in our Jewish identity other than anti-Semitism and hatred towards us. So no one tried to replace the word Russian with the word Ukrainian in his ID card. For example, to be accepted to university, because it didn't matter. It said Jewish, you couldn't change it. And of course, your chances of being accepted were, were certainly much, much less. He said, I was reminded of it this week when I saw thousands of people standing at the borders trying to escape the tragedy in Ukraine. They stand there day and night, and there's only one word that can help them get out of there, Jew. If you are a Jew, there are Jews out there who take care of you. There is someone on the other side of the border who is looking for you. Your chances are living, of living are high. The world has certainly turned upside down. When I was a child, Jew was an unusual word for evil, so no one envied us. And today, on the Ukrainian border, a Jew is an unusual word for good. It describes people who have a place to go, and there is an entire nation, which is their family, waiting for them outside. That's Nothing justifies the existence of the State of Israel more than those words from Sharansky. And more than what is being shown us at the moment. But the difference is that we are going in as a nation and and helping whenever we can. And um, they've set up field hospitals in, in Ukraine uh, to, to, or on the borders in Moldova and all over to help you, any Ukrainian. They don't, they don't ask, are you a Jew before they help? They just help. Absolutely. Now, you know, you were talking about your grandfather, but uh, Martin Gilbert in his book, uh, The Holocaust, The Jewish Tragedy, he defines Jewish resistance as, he says it's individual resistance, and it comes in many forms. The Jews fought oppressors with the weapons they could find, which were often handmade. And uh, he emphasizes that many Jews did resist passively, how? By enduring suffering and even death with great 
dignity. Simply to survive was a victory of the human spirit. And it's what you said just now, the spiritual, um, the, the spiritual means to resist. Now, I would like to go back to your book and tell me about what the different people who have who had resisted during World War II um, and actually appear in your book. I've got your book right in front of me, Men of Valor. And we're going to a quick break and then I'll get back to you. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on the Finding Human program, and I'm back with Peter Bailey in Israel. Well, I'm not in Israel, but he is. <laughs> Hello, <laughs> Peter. Now, you know, you were about to start talking about the Warsaw Ghetto, but I would like to, because time is running out, I would like to actually just discuss which one, which person in particular would you like to discuss of your book, Men of Valor? Sure, that to me, the, the, the one person that epitomizes the strength of the spirit, strength of the body, the ability to fight, the willingness to fight, is a man by the name of Emil Brigg, um, who was also a recipient of Israel's Medal of Valor, the highest uh, military award that can be made for bravery in Israel. Um, if I can, can I talk about Emil Brigg? Yes, for a please while? do. Emil was born in 1924 in, in southeastern Poland and grew up in a, in a Poland that was attacked, as I said, in 1939 by the Germans. Luckily for young Emil Brigg, shortly before the Germans attacked, he fled Poland uh, as a 15-year-old Wow! Um, to get running eastwards away from the advancing Germans. The, and then the Germans, of course, he, he found... Uh, safety in, in what was called the Duchy of Bukovina, which straddles the border. Again, we're back with North Ukraine and South Romania. And uh, he found succor there, and he was living there. And then the Germans started Operation Barbarossa, where Hitler double-crossed his friend Stalin and attacked uh, Russian assets in, in Eastern Europe. Mm. And then the area where, 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 where Brig found himself was in Romania, and Romania loved the Jews as much as the Germans. It was two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. And Brig recounted in a book that he wrote many years later that he was taken to the edge of a pit and lined up with thousands of other Jews, and Germans started opening fire indiscriminately. Fortunately for Emil, one of the, the officers in charge said, it's enough for today, we'll do the rest tomorrow, and Emil Brig was left alive. He say his life was saved. He escaped death. And amazingly enough, amongst the bodies, he found his father still alive and his sister. Huh. Emil and his father joined one of the partisan groups and they started uh, uh, in, 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 uh, with partisan activities, but were soon captured. And they were, him and his father were put on a train sent to one of the concentration camps. They escaped by jumping off the train. <laughs> Again, he escaped death. Mm. Um, and they jo then joined a partisan group. Sorry about that. You know, I, and I know that people are wanting, going to want to know the rest of Emil Briggs' story. And I really do encourage you to get Peter's book, Men of Valor, on Amazon. It's really worth reading. I mean, Emil uh, Briggs' uh, story goes on and the many times that he escaped death 
I'm being told to wrap up already, Peter, and yet uh, there is so much more to be to be uh, said. And Emil Brig, I mean, became a well-known figure in Tel Aviv. So, you know, there's so much that we can learn from these people. And it's exactly what uh, Yuval Harari said about how a nation is built on its stories. And your book, Men of Valor, certainly have these stories of great, great courage that we can all take uh, pride in and know what we are capable of if, if we are actually put to the test. I would like to thank you, Peter. I'm really sorry. You know, as usual, it does end very quickly. <laughs> we will have, we always say we're going to get back to it. By the way, at, at the end of the program, um, they will be playing somewhere over the rainbow and just as a just as an aside it was actually it, it was written by um four children of uh, russian jewish immigrants um one of the one of the four children of russian jewish immigrants his real name was Isidore Hochberg and he grew up in a yiddish speaking orthodox jewish home in new york and um, he's, he's, he became known as Yip Harburg, and the music was written by Harold um, Arlen, a cantor's son. And it's, it's very interesting, this, this actual, if you want to look it up yourselves, on it, on Over the Rainbow. But Peter, once again, thank you. Thank you, Vusi. Thank you, Craig, for keeping us on air. Just would you thank like Thank you, sir. Yes, just say goodbye. <laughs> Thank you very much, Sue, and thank you to our listeners. Um, I've enjoyed being with you this morning. And uh, as you say, time runs runs away so rapidly, uh, but maybe there'll be another time. There will definitely be another time. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> I will call you shortly.